Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Today's program, we've got something for everyone, but we've ended up developing a bit of a uh, charismatic megafauna cetacean theme. But before we get into that, Rex is going to join us in studio shortly talking about the latest techniques for deep diving on Rex using as in Rex, not Rex, but Rex, Rex with a W. Right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm sure we, we I'm all you are. are. <laughs> I'm glad you are. Shipwrecks using uh, mixed gases and rebreathers. So very new cutting-edge technology and uh, making diving on wrecks that are a very long way down possible. Re- re- rebreathers sounds like a, a mask that you've been wearing too long, doesn't it? Like a, like a, 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 a way, way too effective mask. <laughs> We can ask him about that. Um, then we are going to be – you've got some science for us too, Dr Beach. Oh, a little bit of science um, just about oh, the waste of um, – when we clean up dead whales on mm. the beach, dolphins, it's you know, natural deaths sometimes, well, no matter how they died, it is a bounty for wildlife and because, well, it obviously stinks um, and we want to get rid of them, but it is a shame for the environment um, prompted by – an article in Hakai magazine, which I read recently, H-A-K-A-I, which many of our listeners will be aware of, but it's um, out of Canada, very wonderful magazine, which talks a lot about the marine environment. Yeah. Uh, we are also going to be catching up with Dave Donnelly, speaking of whales, um, because uh, the migration season is in full swing down mm-hmm. the east coast, down to Antarctica. Um, so we'll be catching up with Dave on the phone. He's going to be talking about the first humpback calf of the season, uh, which was... Uh, observed on Thursday at the prom uh, and surface krill as well. I'm just reading from a message he sent me on my phone. Surface krill? Yeah. Wonderful. Hmm. Those little crustaceans out there doing (laughs) doing all this stuff. Have you missed this banter, Dr Beach? I have, very much so. (laughs) I was thinking about that. Well, I better be in Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking about that as I was driving in um, about Tim. It would be an evening show from where you've spent the last few months. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, um, to close the show, uh, we are going to be joined in studio by Melody Horrell and she's just written a memoir called A Dolphin Called Jock, which is an extraordinarily powerful and compelling read. Uh, I have read through this book. It is amazing. Um, it's, it's, in, it's really about the significance of a lone solitary dolphin in Port River in Adelaide in terms of uh, how her research with this particular dolphin um, through some volunteer work she did when she was an undergraduate um, working with Dr Mike Bosley who is a he um, I guess would be sort of our equivalent of Jeff Weir without really knowing him but mm-hmm. has done a lot of dolphin behaviour research in Adelaide uh, and her interactions with this particular dolphin, because of course dolphins aren't normally solitary; they they're very social and live within with, right. with pods. Fascinating, um, you know, cross generational uh, existence that they have as well. Anyway, this one little dolphin's on its own, and so it's really about her interaction with this dolphin and how it became a, a life changing encounter for her in terms of how she turned her life around. So, really looking forward to speaking with Melody later on in the show. In the studio, yes. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Triple R. Good morning, Rex. It's a quirky Rex here. <laughs> <laughs> You're always quirky, Rex. Let's get into uh, your segment. Um, latest techniques for deep diving on on shipwrecks. Yeah, well, um, you know, we thought we go out and find a lot of shipwrecks and, and some of them are in very deep water, like some of the ones we've found, you know, over 80-odd metres, um, which is an awful long, long way down. So generally you can dive, you know, on air, which is – Roughly seventy-eight percent nitrogen, twenty percent um, oxygen, one percent mixed gases combines to make general air. So uh, you can dive that reasonably safely to about forty odd meters, which is recommended for sports divers. More experienced divers who are diving deep all the time, like can probably dive you know fifty odd meters on air. But you have to be you have to be on the ball all the time because once you start getting deep, you start the nitrogen in the um, in the mix starts giving you a narcotic effect, and you can start sort of losing control. Mm. So um, this is where mixed gas comes in. We've got basically um, one of the primary ones used is called trimix. So that's a mixture of helium, oxygen, and nitrogen. And again, you, you vary the mixes according to what depth you're diving. So you put more he- helium in, less. Less oxygen, less nitrogen, and you just make the brew for the mix. So, if you're say doing a sixty-five meter dive, you brew brew your mix to do that dive, and you really can't use it on a shallower one or a deeper one. Now, when you say you brew your mix, presumably this isn't happening out the back <laughs> in a shed, in a still out the back. And there's <laughs> a couple of tech dive guys are really right into, like Mark Ryan from Macability and Carl. Cal Grady from Williamstown from Snorkel Dive Snorkel Safari, they really really know this stuff, and um, yeah, they've been doing it for over 20, 20 odd years. So um, you really need to. Well, first off, you do your basic dive course. You want to get you know maybe a couple hundred dives under your belt to get yourself confident, and then you can do start doing more advanced courses like you do a nitrox course where you, a nitrox like Mixed gas sort of makes the uh, – you use a higher oxygen content in your mix. So, as I said, generally it's around 20% oxygen in your um, scuba mix. With nitrox, they, they can crank it right up. And so a general a general one for a good diving up to about 26 metres is 36% oxygen and uh, whatever the rest is. <laughs> and how is that different? So you've talked about um, – Oxygen and nitrogen, and then you've got the trimix, and then there's heliox as well. I've heard helix, heliox. Yeah, that's about, just yeah. that's for the very yeah, you know, like the deep brig dives, and this that's just um, air and uh, helium. Right. Okay. So uh, they take out the, but it it can be because deep, yeah, uh, commercial divers are tethered, and they've got running off of hoses, and they've got all sorts of umbilicals running to them. They, they can keep an eye on them, and they know what's going. You can actually, it can be. Dangerous in some circumstances, mm. you can black out. So, what would determine which type of gas mix you would use? Is it depth related? It's generally depth, because um, you said to narcotic depth, you you can 
accelerate. Like if you're doing, say, a 60-metre dive or even more, you set your nihilic rate to about 40-odd metres. And that way you, you don't need as much helium in your mix. And, well, it's slightly cheaper because helium is phenomenally expensive. Like if you get two 100-cubic-foot tanks filled with a, a mixture, you're, you're looking, you know, like $400-odd. <gasps> wow. Okay. So it's- and that's that's just for for a dive. That's not counting your boat fare and all the other gear you, you have as, as well. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. So, and people get um, people suffer from nitrogen narcosis. It it's different, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So people, you know, one person might um, experience those effects at um, say twenty five, twenty six meters or something like that. But yeah, just- I, I did a forty meter dive once um, just off Jarvis Bay. And definitely felt it. Yeah. But then the person who I was diving with also felt it, but it was quite mild, whereas, you know, I was kind of, you know, (laughs) I felt it quite significantly, I'll put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's also task loading as well. Like if you're you're in the tropics and you've got, you know, 60 metres vis and the water's 25 degrees Celsius and you've got a a nice uh, vertical reef, you know, a wall dive, you can easily get down to... 40 odd metres and you'll be as happy as Larry. But if you're off Port Phillip Heads and you've got a, a rotten swell, it's the middle of winter, you've got four or five metres of viz, it's freezing cold and you're really quite tense before the dive, you will really feel it at, yeah. at depth. And there's, so you have task loading as well. Plus the moment you start getting tech gear on, it it, it can freak you out because you've got two tanks or two back gases, oh, back gas on, on so two hundred cubic foot tanks. You've got two sling tanks on one on either side with different amounts of um you've got a nitrox mix and you'll probably have pure oxygen on the other side. Because you can use pure oxygen above ten meters, any deeper than that, and it's really, really dangerous. You can uh, it becomes toxic you can will you black out. So what determines the ratio of all of these different types of gases and how does that happen? Is it through the first stage of the it's, it's all in planning. I mean, you you're planning. It's all about planning. You, okay. you look you look at your depth, you look at how long you want to spend on the bottom, how long you're willing to tolerate decompression. Like if you're doing a 20-minute dive to um say 60 odd meters, you're going to be spending 40 or 50 minutes decompressing. Yeah, right. So it's quite a it's it's um something that needs to be worked out. Yeah, yeah. An it's, individual, it's, individual dive. It's what you're willing to tolerate. And if it's, I can tell you, as boring as anything, drifting <laughs> ten miles off the prom, yeah, in sixty meters of water with nothing to do, and the, you know, not sharks and all sorts of critters all around you. And tell me about rebreathers. Well, rebreathers. This is um technological breakthrough, really. I mean. Rebreathers have been around for, since World War Two, probably even before, where they were just oxygen rebreathers. So, you, like the um, demolition guys, and that would breathe breathe pure oxygen off a um, off a little small cylinder, and it goes through a circuit, and the soda lime scrubs the O2 out of it, so it comes back as pure oxygen again. And again, providing you don't go below say ten meters, you're fine. So, what happens to the carbon? <coughs> It's absorbed in the soda, soda line. Oh, I see. And oh, the, wow. Okay. So it it's absolutely brilliant, you know, the the idea behind it. So these days you've got, you know, like a, a rebreather, like a ten or $15,000 rebreather, but you, you can do, you know, you can put helium or all, all sorts of gases in and it adjusts the partial pressures of oxygen 
the deeper you go. So it adjusts your mix, whereas you've mixed a back gas of tri-mix for a certain dive, your rebreather will adjust your, your partial pressures of oxygen the deeper you go and as you come up as well. Yeah. It's, just, it's brilliant. It's just – but a lot of people do dive <laughs> using and seriously good divers die because they make one mistake and the show's over, suddenly you're breathing too much oxygen and you black out. And so what's, what is the – is that a human error? Generally human, yeah, generally okay. human. You, there was a famous cave diver, Wes – I can't think of his surname – in the US, but um, he was a super cool cave diver and go for miles under underwater caves and he, he drowned on a rebreather in like you know, 10 metres of water because he just – Relax too much. Yeah. So you got a when you're on your rebreather, you got a little, a little um, sort of uh, instrument panel coming up in front of your, in your front of your face mask. So you always know what your partial pressures are, and you got to keep an eye on that. Yeah. Amazing. We'll have to move on in just a sec. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what's coming up for you in the next few weeks? Well, we're look, looking for more shipwrecks. We're always looking for more shipwrecks. Um, and we, so we've got a couple of targets. We want to. Have a look at and uh, yeah, that's it's always something on the horizon. Always something new to be found. Fantastic! Yeah. All right, well, we look forward to catching up with you again in the near future. A few weeks I'll time. See, I'll see you when I'm looking at you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Thanks, Rex. See you. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Triple R. All right, without further ado, we are now welcoming back to Radio Marinara uh, from the Dolphin Research Institute and Killer Whales Australia. Good morning, Dave Donnelly. Good morning, Ron, and good morning, Dr. Beach. Such a long time between drinks. It is a long time to be, uh, between <laughs> drinks, Dave. It's really nice to um, hear your, your dulcet tone to the other end and, and lovely to be back here in the studio with Ron and Likewise. With all, all our listeners. Hey, Dave, before we get into it, we thought we might um, just uh, – Dr. Beach brought some science in and, and it actually directly relates to what you do. So we thought we might um, kick off with Dr. Beach's summary of what he's been reading about and then lead into some conversation about whale migration. Sounds exciting. Are you okay with that, Dave? Absolutely. <laughs> it's all, and, and I'm sure you're going to have some input on this. I was reading an article in Hakai magazine, which many of our listeners may be familiar with, H-A-K-A-I. It's from um, the west coast of Canada. It's a wonderful magazine which has all sorts of topics about um, articles, wonderful articles about the marine environment. And this one was reminding me about what we do with dead cetaceans. So we often have, we have whale strandings um, on beaches. We have dolphins which are stranded. Um, we as humans like to clean up and that, that can be pretty smelly, so we want to get rid of those things. Um, but what we are doing in that is depriving the environment of an enormous amount of nutrient. For example, um, polar bears. Russian scientists have documented 170 polar bears feeding off a stranded whale. Um, all sorts of 170 of one whale. Um a lot of raptors in California, for example, the condors feed off whales if they're stranded. That is if people don't clean them up. And there have been some pretty famous examples of trying to um, to clean up dead whales. There was um, 
it, it, it's on it's on um, YouTube. But if you oh, go yes. to uh, the Oregon uh, whale in 1970, it was exploded. Uh, but they didn't put what it up. What were they thinking? They wanted to they wanted to blow it up into small pieces so the seagulls could eat it. Uh, but they didn't use enough explosives. So oh. what happened was that there were chunks which came out. One which sort of completely wrecked a car, um, and there was a whole lot of people who just had like this stinking whale blubber all what? over them. So one way is to explode them. Um, we don't do that anymore. Often they are buried. They can be taken off the shore and shipped somewhere else. There was an unfortunate incident as well in um, Taiwan in the 1970s where they um, they got a whale, which and sometimes they they they, they bloat like you know we roadkill bloats get really smelly and um, this um, yeah whale while it was on the truck being transported to landfill actually exploded as it was going through a small village in Taiwan. Oh, a lot of mess there. Mm. Um, being a little bit flippant with that, but um, this article. Um, highlights that it really is better if we can to to leave whales there um, and cetaceans or any any cetaceans dolphins things that wash up because of the the bountiful you know nutrients that it, it, they supply but of course it's um it can be contentious with the smell it is a really rancid terrible smell i don't know if anyone's smelt a dead whale but it, it is um, you know because of the bacteria that are in there the hydrogen sulfides produced methane all sorts of different things Dave, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I completely agree with Dr. Beach and then this this article. It's um, we are really depriving uh, nature's cleanup crew of a of a um, very important uh, food source there. And we we talk about the deep sea and um, uh, marine snow and and things like that. Nutrients falling to the bottom of the ocean to feed animals that live in the benthic environment in those deep sea environments. And whales are part of that. Very famously, we see uh, documentaries filming whales on the bottom and and the, the process of time and how the animals disposed of through um, whatever it is, invertebrates, in fauna, whatever it is down there. Um, and that's kind of out of mind, out of sight. I think we don't really think too much more about that. But once it's in your backyard, it's a different story. And it's easy for me to say not living by, right next to the beach, but for people who do live near the beach and happen to have a whale on, on that beach uh, rotting away, it could be a pretty unpleasant experience. But I wonder if there's an alternative, Dr. Beach, where by perhaps the animals relocated to a I guess, in, I don't know, for want of better words, a more desirable location where it's not affecting humans, but still providing that nutrient source for the for the local fauna. In, in, indeed, Dave, um, one of the options is to, um, and they do this in the United States um, in some cases, is that they take the whale out to sea, fill it with um, scrap metal, and sink it, um, so that you have like a, a whale fall, as it's called. You were describing before, it is a bounty on the sea floor. There's all sorts of animals which are. Um, there. It's scrap metal. Scrap metal. Well, but scrap metal, I mean, I mean, it does sound bad. I know that, but scrap metal is really not that polluting. No, well, true. And, and you yeah, do have to sink that. So, yeah, so old train it, yeah. wheels, for example, yeah. stuff that's there that's going to go in yeah, the landfill right. anyway, it really doesn't. It's, you know, we make artificial turn, reefs. Yeah, we're turning into a reef. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, but very interesting thing. Dave, back to you. Some, some news from you. <laughs> I don't want to take your entire segment. <laughs> uh, that's, it's a fantastic topic to discuss. And, and look, there's, there's, there's good ways, bad ways, and there's always better ways to, uh, to, to deal with these sort of situations. And I think putting a, taking a whale off a beach and putting it in, into landfill 
uh, isn't really the answer. I think it's, um, but then again, it comes down to management at the time. So as much as I'd like to talk about this a lot more, as you can tell, um, I will tell you what we have to say today around the uh, the migration of whales on the East Coast, uh, if, you're, if you're still interested, Dr. Beach. <laughs> we are. But just that one, just, 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 I'm going to go back to one. So landfill, that, that's one thing I didn't mention, is that the whale, when, if we just bury them straight off, we have the, um, around the outside, it almost seals them and they don't rot properly. Um, Correct. And, and it's just this putrefying mess. Yep. Yeah. Anyway, we need a segment on this. We do. It's a great segment. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dave, let's get to some news about whale migration. Um, and you messaged me yesterday about this with the southern right whales uh, pretty much uh, your words were southern right whales all but gone. Yeah, so, so it seems. Um, there's some uh, great work being done in southern right whales now, part of the world, and, and we merely uh, pull back the curtain and have a look from time to time to help with our, um, our processes in, within the work that we do. And uh, what we've discovered is that all the animals that have come to the Victorian coast to calve, uh, which was in total three animals that we know of, um, seem to have left. They've spent their time uh, re- rearing their young, and it seems like they're, they're good to go. But... There is a but. Um, southern right whales from southern New South Wales have been uh, tracked through Victoria and now appearing as close as Phillip Island, um, certainly one pair. Um, famously, a few weeks ago, there was a white southern right whale calf which was photographed off Marlow, then again near Lake Entrance, uh, then that box sport, uh, which originated, we believe, although the photo ID is not there to support it, but white whales are very rare in, over the course of an annual migration or annual calving season. Um, we do believe that's the same animal that's come down from, from Bateman's Bay region. So some really good citizen science information coming through um, and it's telling us that it looks like we're having sort of a shortened residency period for these cow-calf pairs and what's um, a little bit disturbing in some some, uh, literature that's recently come out is it's looking like their um, calving regime has changed from around about three years extending to five to seven. Mm. That's really concerning for for a a large mammal that's in such low numbers in our region. So um, uh, something to keep our eye on there. Any thoughts as to why that might be? Look, there's a lot of things happening in the ocean. I don't. We, we could go mm. on with this for, yes. for days and days and days. It's a conference in itself, um, and a lot of things are changing. We're we're, we're seeing the presence of um, blue whales and southern right whales overlapping in our coastal coastal areas. Um, this has never been recorded before. We had the longest blue whale season on record last year, which started in September and finished in July. Um, now, they're just off the charts. Um, and, of course, the southern rights with their changing in behaviour and now the humpback whales, which seem to be... It only seems like yesterday we were talking about the northerly migration mm. just starting and already we're talking about the southerly migration. Put the pieces in the, in the puzzle in the middle there and the question has to be, are we having humpback whales overwintering in Victorian waters? And I think the answer is probably... Close to yes. Yeah, and and what has La Nina got to do with it too? So many questions. We will pick up on some of these next time because we've only got about a minute left. Um, two things I did want to ask you about was the surface krill appearing in the west. Tell us about surface krill and why that's significant. 
Um, well, surface krill, surface krill um, is obviously krill we can see. Um, krill exists in all depths, but um, at the, when it's at the surface, we know that we then know it's present um, visually. So what we're seeing there is what we're thinking is we're, we're starting to see the beginning of what could be a nice upwelling season in the west of Victoria. It started around this time last year, and it looks like it's starting again around the same time. So fingers crossed um, we are going to see a nice productive year, which will keep us in the loop on that, well not keep us in the loop, but keep us um, focused on blue whales and other large baleen predators. Um, fingers crossed, we're looking forward to, to watching that, that space and hopefully our colleagues down there in the west at um, the blue whale study will be able to give us some good news. And let's finish on a high, very exciting news, first humpback calf of the season. Again, too early. It is good news. It's great news that we're getting calves, and humpback whale calves tend to appear on our coastal waters in you know sort of mid to late October, um, and we start to get consistency there. But um, we're obviously in our second week, I think now of um, just over past our second week of September, and we've already got our first humpback whale calf. There's a big question to be asked around the uh, ocean ecosystems, I think, and um, again, a conference. <laughs> Dave, always a pleasure to catch up with you uh, and look forward to catching up with you again in the next few weeks because um, we're going to follow this one through every couple of weeks, have you on and, and keep us up to speed with what's happening with the uh, with the whale migration. Absolutely, Brian. Look forward to it and love the opportunity. Good to see you back, Dr Beach. Uh, nice to talk to you too, Dave. <laughs> we'll catch you soon. Bye for now. Cheers for now. See Bye-bye. You. Bye. Dave Dunley there from Killer Whales Australia and the Dolphin Research Institute here in Victoria. Our Dave. Our Dave. Triple R. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Triple R. Now, Melody Horrell is an award-winning journalist, documentary producer and author, and at some point in this mix she went to university to study psychology and communications and in her first month at university signed up to be a volunteer with her lecturer and dolphin behaviour researcher, Dr Mike Bosley, who was studying South Australia's Port River dolphins. Melody's experiences that followed that decision proved to be life-changing as through the research fieldwork she encountered the dolphins of Port River and in particular a solitary injured dolphin that had been given the name of Jock. Melody's experiences with the Port River Dolphins and the context in which they proved to be so significant on her life have formed a powerful new memoir called The Dolphin, A Dolphin Called Jog. To find out all about it, it's with great pleasure we welcome to Triple R here in the studio, Melody Horrell. Good morning, Melody. Oh, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you with us. <laughs> We've had a few years with very few guests in studio. Oh, so. I bet. <laughs> Well, it's lovely to actually walk into a studio because a lot of the interviews I've been doing since the book was released, of course, has been by Zoom or over the phone. So it's really lovely to be in this environment and, uh, yeah, really appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to have you here. Um, Before we get into this, I just want to let our listeners know some of what we're about to talk about will refer to domestic violence. So if you're listening and find this triggering, um, please be aware. We'll uh, we'll give the details of Lifeline at the end of this if uh, people who are listening need some support from reactions um, to a conversation we're about to have. So, look, first up, Melody, congratulations on the publication of this. Um, I have read it. I, I've, It was just amazing. It felt like a dedication to this one particular animal that really led to your transformation. 
Just like an author might dedicate a memoir to a partner or a mentor, is that fair to say? It is fair to say. Jock was an incredibly special dolphin and uh, the book really follows uh, my relationship with him, what impact he had on my life and really that connection to the natural world and uh, to the broader environment and how that actually helped me find myself. So, but Jock, out of all the dolphins that appear in the book, was obviously the most special and, and the closest to my heart. He was an incredibly special animal. I think it's important to to say within the context of the conversation that we're having that that an individual relationship with an animal in the wild is not a usual thing and there are particular circumstances that led to this. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, let me start off by saying that Jock was never enticed. We never fed him. Um, we never forced him to interact with us. Jock was a, a dolphin who was a solitary dolphin. First time I saw him, he was just circling a boat uh, around and around and around, had this incredibly mangled dorsal fin from years of being entangled in fishing line as he was developing. So his dorsal fin, uh, it was almost unrecognisable as a dolphin. It was so badly mangled. And uh, he'd spend his entire life just circling this one boat only to break off to feed. And over a period of time, myself and and other research assistants got to know Jock and he really approached us for that interaction. And I, over a period of three years, got to know Jock uh, on a very personal level. And uh, He was obviously, we believe he was orphaned so and he didn't have the social skills to actually interact with other dolphins, stuck to this one part of the river and really wouldn't leave that part of the river. And it appeared to us that he was reaching out Mm. for that sort of interaction. And as I said, look, over that three-year period, I had some extraordinary experiences with him that it, it was just amazing to be in his environment with a wild animal and have him accept myself and others completely unconditionally. There there were no strings attached with that relationship. Extraordinary. I had this question at the end, but I'm going to ask it of you now (laughs) because we're we're talking about this. Did did do you and and Mike and other sort of researchers, did did it feel like you had become collectively a substitute pod for the pod that he didn't have? Possibly. You know, I'm really wary of speaking for Jock Mm. and and the dolphins, but I I think so. I think that we perhaps filled a niche in his life. Uh, It appeared to us, certainly to me, that he was incredibly lonely and disconnected from his other dolphin friends and the environment. And, uh, you know, I, I think, and I, once again, I won't speak for him, but that we sort of filled that niche of uh, in his life of, of socialisation, interacting with another thing, even though we weren't of the sp- same species. But uh, we connected on so many levels, mm. even though we were different species. Mm. And obviously I was an intruder into his world because his world was a was the water and the river and my world is the land and I'm a human. Uh, and all that sort of fell away mm. when we were interacting with him. It didn't feel like we were interacting with, um, you know, we were interacting with a friend, a friend in the water. Melody, you're doing a wonderful job of describing this inter- in- interaction. 
I mean, I'm kind of there in, in the Port <laughs> River with you. But can you give us an example of, of, of you say you had these extraordinary mm, experiences with Jock. Just, just one example that stands out in your mind. Oh, there are so many. It's so difficult. Okay. I think one of the things that really impacted me and uh, which brought me to tears actually at the time was I mean, Jock was a very tactile animal. He would rub up against you. He'd want to play. He was really mischievous. He just um, seemed to uh, have this joy you know, this joy in the moment of living in the moment and this, this sense of fun, which so many of us lose, you know, as, as we go through life. And I was in the water one day and I was putting on my mask and yeah, he was hanging around the back of the boat and he was nudging the ladder as he always did saying, hurry up, you know, get in the water. <laughs> and um, I jumped into the water, but my feet were touching the ground because I couldn't get my goggles right. And um, suddenly I felt this thing under my foot. I had no idea where Jock had gone. He disappeared. And I realised that it was actually his nose under my foot and he kept on nudging my foot and all I could see were these bubbles coming up to the surface. And, um, you know, I lifted my feet and I yelled at Mike and I said, what's he doing? And he said, well, Mello, that's what Mike's name for me was, uh, he's, he, he's actually trying to save you. He thinks you're drowning because dead things in the water, in the ocean, sink to the bottom. So he's actually trying to lift your feet up off the ocean floor and save you. And oh, at that moment, it was just this extraordinary feeling of being accepted by this animal who was showing this kind of concern and care for my well-being. And given my background, that was something new for me. That that whole experience was brand new. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Um, you we're, we're all a bit teary. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm tearing up here too. <laughs> I want to ask you about your connection to the sea. You grew mm. up um, the first few years of your life in Cornwall. Have you always had that connection to nature? I have. I have. I've always loved the ocean. In fact, my partner would tell you that um, if I go too far from the ocean, I become a bit funny. Um, <laughs> I'm not happy. So I've always loved the ocean. I've always had the the deepest respect and love and um, desire to, to be in the water, anywhere near the water. And I feel really passionate about the fact that, you know, we have this, most of the planet's uh, covered by water and we have this extraordinary life in the sea. And I just want us to respect it. I, I think we need to. And, uh, you know, to have this relationship with Jock was life-defining for me. It mm. defined my life and it defined where I moved forward from that point. So I spent many, many, many years, um, you know, advocating for the Port River Dolphins and their welfare. And that was a result of this relationship that I had with this disfigured, solitary, beautiful friend. Mm. And it was that moment that really led to the transformation in your life. Mm. I did want to touch on that because mm. it's really it's such it's really what this book is all about and as you write it it you oscillate from dark to light to dark to light and yeah. that sort of follows the narrative all the way through. It does. It was important that um the book wasn't just bleak. You know, the book is about hope actually at the, at the end of the day. And I wrote the book for two reasons really. Um, firstly, obviously to put a focus back onto the Port River Dolphins. They're in trouble at the moment and um, I feel really passionate about their their future and their well-being. But also uh, with my background, having had a childhood really uh, racked by domestic violence and living in in that environment and, and having to sort of heal from that, um, what kind of impact that connection with nature had on me and that connection with the natural world. And 
there's, there is really is an element of hope in the book. I really wanted the book to be hopeful and it couldn't just be bleak. It had to be that light and shade, that joy and despair. We've only got a couple of minutes left. I could talk to you for another half an hour. <laughs> I would love to organise another time for you to come Sure. In, particularly when, love to. when Dave Donnelly's here as well. So we were just speaking with Dave. He's from our Dolphin Research Institute and um, you, you guys oh, have got a lot to. to compare notes about. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, where are they at now with the Port River Dolphins? Well, the, there's been about half a dozen Port River Dolphins uh, die uh, mysteriously over the last 12 months and only about one in 13 cows are surviving at the moment. There's been a lot of uh, necropsies done on the dolphins uh, that have died. They've they've just become very skinny and then died and these are healthy animals and uh, the government doesn't know what's causing their deaths. Uh, so... There's currently a parliamentary committee um, that's uh, been formed. I've made a submission to that, whether that actually makes an impact. The, the Port River is a dolphin sanctuary. You know, I, myself and Mike and others worked really hard to um, create uh, – push the government into creating a, a dolphin sanctuary, Australia's first dolphin sanctuary. And in my view, if it's a dolphin sanctuary, then it has to do what it says on the box, has to be a dolphin sanctuary, or it's not. So things need to change. And I can only hope that community will and my book and other voices can actually lead to that. Because it is in a highly industrialised part of Adelaide as well. It is. But the but the thing is that you're right, and historically very much so, but there's also parts of the Port River with the mangroves, which are tens of thousands of years mm. old, which are still pristine and beautiful. There are really beautiful parts of that river, and that's why the dolphins are there. You know, you've got your mangroves, you've got your ecosystems, and that really needs to be protected. So for more information, again, I could talk for another half hour, but we're coming right up against our next program. It's okay. Um, Melody, A Dolphin Called Jock, published by Alan and Unwin, available in all good bookstores, shall we say that? All good bookstores. And I'm not sure what's available around this area, but certainly just about every coastal bookstore and the big ones have it as well. Fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure having you in. You can probably see from my pages, I have literally four pages of questions that I haven't got to. (laughs) If you'd love to come back. I'd love to come back. Let's talk about the dolphins themselves, I think. And and there's a broader subject here, I think, about preservation and and importance of environmental Looking yes. The environment. Yeah. What's happening with the Port River dolphins is really um, yeah happening with dolphins around the world. It's not just specific to the Port River. So yes, it's much broader discussion to be had. Thanks so much for joining us. It's today. total pleasure. Thank that you. Brings us to the end of our program. With thanks to Melody Horrell, to Dave Donnelly uh, from Dolphin Research Institute, Rex Hunter. Thank you, Dr. Beach. It's a pleasure. Thank you, Nerida, very much. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.